Um, we've been in this series, it's called uh, Decisions, Decisions, and we're leaning into the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. This is a body of literature that includes, obviously, Proverbs, where we'll be the majority of the time, but also includes a book called Ecclesiastes and a book called Song of Solomon. Uh, couples, if you haven't read the Song of Solomon recently, check it out. Uh, God put it there for a reason. It's for you. Um, and uh, also there's a book called Job that fits into that, uh, that body of literature. So Job's, Psalm, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, uh, and the Song of Solomon. But we're looking at uh, Proverbs because we are faced with choices and decisions every day. And I don't think anybody in the room would say, you know, I have all the knowledge that I need. I have all the perspective. I have, I have everything I need to make great decisions. I think all of us would say, no, give me a little more. Give me a little more help. Give me a little more insight as I decide how to spend my money, how to spend my time, how to lead my family, um, you know, who to marry. Uh, all of these things are, all these major decisions uh, come at us very quickly. And the book of Proverbs can be very helpful. Um, and I want to say this. If you've been on a, a mission trip with me, you might disagree with what I'm about to say. But I, I want to just say, I'm not afraid of hard work, okay? I'm not afraid of work that you have to sweat a little bit to accomplish. But I will say this, if there's an easier way, I'll gladly take the easier way. Uh, I want to work smarter and not harder. And I think all of us would uh, agree to that. We've found ways to work smart. And um, there, I think this came along with the advent of the internet, but... Uh, there are hacks and tricks and tips and things to help you do tasks easier and more efficiently. We call them life hacks. And the internet is full of these life hacks to help you do things that you would normally do in your daily life or maybe a, a repair that you have, something in your home. And there's all kinds of life hacks to help you do life a little easier. You can Google this. Don't Google it right now. But you can find a life hack for everything from polishing your shoes with old coffee grinds like who polishes their shoes anymore actually this is my first question but you can polish your shoes with old coffee grinds and you can also make your own sausage with a used plastic coke bottle how many of you were like i need to polish my shoes and i need to make my own sausage so thank you for sharing that with me you're going to go google it and uh, and do those things but uh, a some of these life hacks are a little out of hand and so I found a website that took some of the most helpful life hacks that this person had found, and they put them all on one website, and I want to share three of them with you. Um, someone suggested that instead of fixing the hole in your sock, you just, you just take a marker and, and, and just color in where the hole is, okay? Brilliant, right? No one will ever know that you have a hole in your sock, except you, of course, but no one will ever know just color in wherever the hole is, and uh, you don't have to fix, fix that hole in your sock. Uh, I was traveling this week, and I stayed in a hotel where you have access to an iron and a hair dryer. And if you have old food that you want to heat up, well, look, you can heat your food up like this. Isn't that awesome? Who needs a microwave when you can put a piece of cold pizza on your hotel-issued iron and then warm it up with your hair dryer? Uh, if you get a little hair in your food, I, that might happen. But other than that, this is a great life hack. Okay, and I'm going to show you this third one. And as I was going through this website, 
kind of dawned on me that somebody's trying to pull our leg here because you know the tube where you buy tennis balls and you can fit three tennis balls in that tube? Well, if you cut them all in half and stack them on top of one another, you can get six, maybe eight tennis balls in that same tube. And at this point, I think somebody's trying to pull my leg. They're trying to get me to cut up my perfectly good tennis balls. You've got to get up pretty early in the morning to pull one over on me. I know they were, they were, trying, to, they were trying to trick me here. Um, but uh, we love things that make our life easier. And some of them are really good life hacks, and some of them are just really dumb. But how many of us have this thing in our pocket, or maybe you have it out right now? You're probably on the Bible app. You probably have clicked events. You probably found this teaching there in, our, in the live events section of the Bible app, and you're following along right now. I know no one's on Facebook right now. But we have these devices in our pockets, and we carry them around, and we call them smartphones. If they were called dumb phones, we wouldn't carry them, and we wouldn't buy them. If they were called hard phones, we wouldn't want to buy them either. We want things that are smart, and we want things that make our life easier. And I have a little bit of bad news for you, and that is this. The book of Proverbs, although they come to us as these short, sort of pithy sayings, these little maxims that we can read very quickly, the book of Proverbs is not a book of life hacks. It's not a book of quick fixes. It's not as if we can go and read something that takes us like 30 seconds to read and it will instantly fix our problems. We do not find microwavable solutions in the book of Proverbs. What we find there is a book intended to form our character. And this is what the wisdom literature is wanting to do. Proverbs is about the formation of our character, not for the quick fixes to our problems. This is not about a quick fix or a quick solution because character is not microwaved. Character is formed over time. And that is what Proverbs is wanting to do for the people of God. So let's go to to chapter 8. This is sort of the theological summit of Proverbs. It's the it's sort of the, if you want to know why this book is there and what this book is trying to say to us, uh, Proverbs 8 uh, is, is that place. And so let's revisit that, beginning with verse 1. Does not wisdom call out? Does not understanding raise her voice? At the highest point along the way, where the paths meet, she takes her stand. Beside the gate leading into the city, at the entrance, she cries aloud, To you, O people! I call out. I raise my voice to all of humanity. You who are simple, gain prudence. You who are foolish, set your hearts on it. Listen, for I have trustworthy things to say. I open my lips to speak what is right. So here at this theological summit of the book of Proverbs, we see wisdom personified. And it is this person, this voice that is calling out, and it's inviting all of humanity to order their lives by that which is true and honorable and just and prudent and wise. And this right ordering of our life is, is, is our character. This is what wisdom is wanting to create in us. Now let's say something about character. Your character is not what you believe. Now, what you believe is important. You're here today, perhaps you're exploring beliefs. 
And, but some of you are here because you firmly believe certain things about the world. And you believe certain things about the Bible. Specifically, you believe some things about what God has done in Jesus Christ. We believe in the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. These are important. These are foundational. These are, these are the, at the core of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. But character is not about your beliefs. Character is not about what you think. You have a certain perspective on the world. You think about things maybe in Christian ways. Maybe you have a Christian lens that colors the way that you see the world and who God is calling you to be in this world. But character is not about what you think. See, it's not about what you believe. It's not about what you think. It's not about your worldview. Character is what you do. Character is measured by the moral quality of the choices. It's where the rubber meets the road. It's when you're faced with a dilemma, what choice do you make? What way do you respond? What do you say? How do you use your words and your actions that are in ways that are in alignment with the, the character of Christ? You see, that's the goal for the Christ follower. We certainly have certain beliefs, and we certainly have certain ways that we want to think about things. But at the end of the day, all of that is, is shaping the decisions that we make, and, and that is our character. And the goal of the Christ follower is that your character would be brought into alignment with the character of Christ, so that your actions, the things that you do, would be consistent with what Jesus would want you to do. And so on the road to Christ-like character, we have to figure out how to take what we believe and what we know and what we think about and apply it to what we do. There's a theologian, his name's Kevin Van Hooser, and he makes this distinction. He says this, Disciples need more than knowing that. They need to know how to live their knowledge of Jesus Christ. This is wisdom. Wisdom is lived knowledge. The ability to transpose what we know here to that problem over there. And so your character is formed in this crucible of life. And every day you're in the crucible and it's getting heated and it's really hot there. And, and choices and decisions and dilemmas are coming at you every day. And your character is the measure of how you respond in those situations. Now, in this crucible... What is one of the main arenas that we, that we engage in? What are, the, what are one of the main places that we live in where we spend a lot of our time and where we make some of our biggest decisions? And you might be tempted to say, well, my family. But you know, if, if we're just being honest, it's, it's our vocations. It's our work. Some of us in the room are retired, and, and so um, this, this may not be as as. You may not feel this as acutely as some in the room. But for those of us that are punching the clock, for those of us that are showing up somewhere on, um, on Monday morning, and, and for some of us that's in our home offices these days, but we have vocations and jobs. And, and in those places, you make hundreds, if not thousands of decisions every day. Did you know that the average American worker will spend 90,000 hours at work over the course of their lifetime? That's one-third of your life. One-third of your life will be spent at work. You say, Pastor, I thought this was a place of good news. <laughs> that doesn't sound like good news to me. 
that one-third of my life will be spent at, at work. Well, I, I'm going to share some good news with you in a moment, and that may not sound like good news, but it is true news. This is the, the reality for us. And, and we see wisdom saying, let, let this way of life inform the way you work. Verse 3 of chapter 8 it says that wisdom calls out at the gate of the city, the city gate. So in the ancient Near East, cities were surrounded by walls and they had gates. And at those gates, people came in and they, and they went out. But that was the place where commerce happened. That was the place where uh, education happened. That was the center of culture. It was the place where judgments were made. If you had a grievance, you would go to the city gate. There'd be a judge. You'd, you'd present your case, uh, a, a, an announcement would be made. But so much of the, the commerce of the city happened there at the city gate. And so nothing made its way into the marketplace of ideas, if you will, that didn't begin at the city gate in the ancient city. You might say that the city gate was like the LinkedIn of the ancient Near East. Like, this is where people connected. This is where deals got done. This is where you, 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 you married up, you know, somebody with this skill, with this job over here. It all happened at the city gate. And so this story of wisdom is inviting us to take this distinct way of life, this way of wisdom, to take it out of our homes and into the marketplace, into the city gate to live it out there. You see... In your workplace, your workplace decisions shape your character. And so we have the potential to be salt and light in our workplaces. We have the potential to, to, to shape the environments that we work in. But I think the converse of that is true as well. That our workplaces have the potential to shape us. And this is where we need to, as the people of God, this is where we need to be aware. Because wisdom is calling, wisdom is inviting us into a distinct way of life. But we're spending 90,000 hours of our life in another environment, in another culture, and that culture has a distinct way of life as well. There is a set of values in that place and among those people as well. And sometimes they're not always aligned with the ways of God. Um, when you hired on with your company, um, let's, let me talk to those who are working today. When you hired on with your company, you probably sat down with, with a human resources person or maybe your boss, and they had a document, and this document was hammered out at an executive retreat somewhere, and it was the values of this company. And it was, it was you know, the leadership of the company got together, and they said, these are the things that we want to characterize what we value. We want them to guide our culture. We don't want to do anything that violates this set of values. And they handed you what's, what's known as uh, the, the official values of, of, the, of the company. And, and these are probably hanging up on the break room somewhere, or maybe, uh, you know, the CEO has these down at the bottom of his, e his or her email signature. You know, they've got their core values down there. And so companies go to great lengths to say, these are the things that we value. These are the things that's going to order and guide our work. So there's official values that are shaping you at work. But then there are 
unspoken values. Is, any, is anyone familiar with this? There's these unspoken values that we're not going to put it in print, but if you hang around here long enough, you're going to see this is how things work around here. For instance, a spoken value might be family first. I mean, who doesn't want to work for a company that says in print, in the break room, in their official onboarding material, we value you and your family, we put family first. But then something like an unspoken value manifests itself when you're at your kid's soccer game on a Saturday morning and you get a text and it's from your boss and it says, did you get that presentation I emailed you last night at 11.45? And the unspoken value is you should have been checking your email at 11.45. The unspoken value is you need to text me back right now. Can anybody relate to this? And so we have, we have perceived values, and then we have these unspoken values. And, and, and that's just a benign, that's just a benign example of the ways our workplaces shape us. You're there 90,000 hours of your waking life. And whatever the perceived or the unspoken values are of that environment, they have the potential to form and shape your character. Checking your email at 11.45 at night is, is, is probably not something I should recommend to you. Interrupting your child's soccer game on a Saturday morning is, is also probably not something I should recommend to you. I do recognize that those of you who are sitting here, you're hearing this and you're saying, but Pastor I have to, and I get that and understand that. So that's pretty benign. But there might also be an unspoken value that says, you know, at this company, in this place, in this environment, we've pretty much decided that if it makes money, it's okay. And that is where the workplace has the chance to form us in ways that are counter to the ways of God. You see, everywhere you go, you're either being formed or malformed. And what we hope to do in this place, and the reason that you got up early this morning and you, you got the kids ready and, and you rushed out the door to get here, is hopefully in this hour that we have together, some positive formation can happen so that your character is brought into alignment with the character of Christ. But for 90,000 hours in your lifetime, there may be forces at work in your life that seek to malform that. And so we, we come into this place and we say, we say, God, as I go to the city gate, as I hear this call of wisdom, would you, would you give me wisdom? Would you give me discernment? Would you help me to recognize the voices in my life that are forming me to be more like you? and the voices in my life that are forming me to be more like something else that I don't want to be. And so as we go to the city gate, how is it that we can lean into the wisdom tradition and be formed in positive ways, perhaps even in ways that shape the culture of our companies in the right way? Uh, Book of Proverbs has so much to say about this, so much to say so much practical wisdom that we can take to workplace with us. Uh, I'm just going to share four with you, but there are so much more. This is not exhaustive at all. But what if we went into our workplaces 
and allowed Proverbs to form us, and, and we, we live by these four principles. Uh, number one, as you, as you go to the workplace, what if we took criticism graciously? Can we be a people that takes criticism graciously? Proverbs 25 says, To one who listens, valid criticism is like a gold earring or other gold jewelry. Now, how many of you like to be told that you're doing something wrong? Just raise your hand. <laughs> how many of you like to be corrected? Like, none of us. Like, we, no one enjoys that. But what the book of Proverbs says is, what if we approached our work with this place of humility that said, I can improve. I, I can get better. And even though my boss didn't deliver it the way that I wish she would have, or he didn't deliver it the way I wish he would have, I need to receive what they're saying. And maybe there's some truth in what they're saying, and maybe there's an opportunity for me to improve. What comes to us and stings and it hurts, Proverbs is saying it can be transformed into a gold earring. It can be something that makes you a better teacher. It makes you a better merchant. It makes you a, 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 a better person in the workplace. And so let's take criticism graciously. This is what wisdom is inviting us to do. This is real tempting to ignore this, but number two, stay out of workplace gossip. Man, you're there so long, and you share so much life with these people. You can get pretty entwined with their life, and it's, it's, there's something always juicy happening at work. But the wisdom is saying, let's stay out of workplace gossip. Uh, Proverbs 19 says, a gossip goes around telling secrets, so don't hang around with chatterers. There's so much life that we share, and, and it's, it's so tempting to talk about who's moving where and who's doing what and who's getting which new job and what relationship is happening in the workplace, but none of that is productive to, to what you're there to do, and also all of that contributes to your malformation. It contributes to, to your character being developed in ways that are contrary to the ways of Christ, and so wisdom is saying, let's stay out of workplace gossip. Number three, conduct transactions with honesty. Conduct our transactions with honesty. Look at Proverbs 16. Honest scales and balances belong to the Lord. All the weights in the bag are of his making. So what the writer of Proverbs is assuming is our knowledge of how business was transacted at that time. And, and so we may not be fully familiar with what they're talking about here, but let me explain it to you. You would have a scale, and you would be selling, a merchant would be selling a, a bushel of grain. And so the, the provider with the grain would come, and they would pile on the grain on one side of the scale, and you would take out of your bag a weight, and the weight would be labeled one bushel. And you would place your weight onto the scale, and when the bushel of grain equaled the weight, you got it all balanced, you would complete the transaction. And someone, somewhere, at some point in biblical history decided, what if? What if I had weights that were lighter? Or what if I had weights that are heavier? And I just said it was one bushel. We labeled them all the same. We labeled them one bushel. But when I needed to get a little more, I'd use this weight. And when I needed to make it a little less, I'd use this weight. And what the wisdom tradition is saying is the character that is being formed, that we want to be formed in our life, all of these scales, these tools of the trade that you have, they belong to the Lord. 
So when you bring this way out of your bag to conduct business, as a follower of Jesus, you are saying, this, this belongs to the Lord. This transaction I'm conducting as if the Lord was here, as if I was conducting this transaction with the Lord. I'm representing the Lord in this place, in this space. So I'm going to conduct this honestly, and I'm going to bring out a way that's accurate. Um, I was reading this week about, and there's so many examples of this in our contemporary culture of how transactions are, are completed with, with dishonest scales. But I was reading this week about the American car industry in the late 50s and early 60s. So go back with me to post-World War II and the economies humming along in the 1950s, this sort of golden age of, of American history. Everybody had a Buick and everybody had a refrigerator and it was your patriotic duty to go buy a Buick or a Ford or a Lincoln or whatever. And uh, it was your patriotic duty to go and buy a refrigerator and, and, and soldiers were coming home, and they were starting families, and the economy was starting to pick up. And it became pretty obvious that what was going to churn the American wheels of the economy was, was consumer spending. And so it became your patriotic duty to buy American auto cars. And Detroit benefited from this. You see large profits that were happening with American car makers but about the late 50s and early 60s, they decided, you know, not only in our advertising do we need to create this sense of, like, you, you need this new Buick. You need this new Ford. Not only do we need to create this sense of you know, people needing what they really don't need, but we also, what if we could design alternators in such a way that after about four years they wore out? What if we could design water pumps in such a way that after a few years, they, they, would, they would naturally begin to wore out. What if we created this sense of urgency? Not only do you want a new car, but you have this urgency to buy a new car because your water pump's out or your alternator's out. And so this is a documented thing in the late 50s and early 60s. American car makers designed cars with planned obsolescence so that they would wear out in certain ways at certain times. And we keep, I guess it would be our parents at this point, keep our parents or grandparents buying new cars. You see, there was a short-term gain to be made. And Detroit won in the short term. In the short term, they made more money. But in the long term, it hasn't worked out so well. Today, the top-selling car in the United States is the Toyota Camry, known for its dependability. Known for its dependability. And so there's a short-term gain to be had by using dishonest scales, but it doesn't work out in the long term. Conduct transactions with honesty. Finally, as you go to the city gates, as you go to the workplace, friends, give it your all. Give it your all. Proverbs 12 says, those who, work with their, their, those who work their land will have abundant food. Those who chase fantasies have no sense. You may be in a job that you don't like. You may be in a job that's not fulfilling for you. What Proverbs is saying is not, they're not saying don't look for another job. But what they're saying is when you are at work, when you are in the 
workplace, when you're at the city gate, give it your all. You, you can look for another job when you're not on the clock. You can dream about another job when, when, when you're not doing the current job that you have. But when you show up to work, give it your all. Show up on time. In the book of Colossians, Paul says, work, work as if you are working for the Lord. And so we have this responsibility as, as followers of Jesus that when we show up, that we are going to, to give, it, give it our all. And so none of, this, it, none of these are quick fixes, but they represent a way of living. They represent a, a people uh, of character. And one of the things the wisdom tradition is saying to us is that your work matters. What you do Monday through Friday matters. You may not always feel like it matters, but it does. Uh, we're going to just close by real quickly looking at the rest of Proverbs 8. And as I said, it, it forms sort of the theological summit of Proverbs. And one of the things it's saying is that wisdom was present at creation. And it was just programmed, this way of living, this way of going to work, is, is programmed into the fiber of creation. We see wisdom's origin in Proverbs chapter 8. We see wisdom's presence at creation. And then we see wisdom's joy watching God go about creating this good world. This is the Israelite wisdom story, and it's connected to the story of creation and the creation of humanity. And it was written at a time in which, in which there was a competing story. There was a competing story of creation that explained the origin of humanity, and it was the Babylonian story. And I want to tell you the Babylonian story uh, and contrast it with the Israelite story. I think it's very helpful for us today. So in the Babylonian story, there is wisdom. The Babylonians had a way of thinking about wisdom. It, they had a god of wisdom, one of the gods in the upper tier of gods in their, in their pantheon. And the god of wisdom was named Ea. And this god had tremendous insight, was able to think about things, and was able to solve mysteries. But Ea had no power to execute any of the things that he thought about. That belonged to another god, the god of power, named Enlil. And so Ea and Enlil, they were in this upper echelon of, of gods in, 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 uh, in Babylonian lore. And there's this interesting story where this lower tier of gods. So think about the gods that controlled the seas and the god that controls the streams and the rivers and the gods that control the soil and the, the vineyards and the plants. This lower tier of gods have, they, they are becoming frustrated with their, with their jobs and their tasks. The God that is in charge of the soil says, I'm tired of managing the soil. And the God that controls the vineyards says, I'm tired of making things grow. And the God that, that controls the streams and the rivers says, I'm tired of stewarding the streams and the rivers and keeping them clean and, and watering the earth. I'm just getting tired of that. I don't want to do it anymore. And so they begin to revolt. And Enlil, the god of power that's trying to hold all this together, goes to Ea, the god of wisdom, and says, what should we do? The, god, the lower gods, they don't want to take care of the rivers and the streams and the soil and the vineyards and the crops and they're revolting. And what are we going to do? And Ea says, I have a plan. What we need to do, what you need to do, since you have the power, we need to create a being lower than these gods who can do all of the things that those gods don't want to do. 
We need to create a bean to take care of the soil. And we'll, t- we'll create a bean to take care of the vineyards. We'll create a, a bean to manage the rivers and the streams. And it'll make those lower gods happy because they don't have to do it anymore. We'll create a bean. We'll call them humanity. And this is how Babylonians explain our presence here on earth. This was the Babylonian story of why you work the soil. This was the Babylonian story of of why you you took care of the vineyard and why you took care of the rivers and the streams. This was their origin story for humanity. And, And do you have a sense today that maybe this is how your company values you? Are you coming into this place and you're saying, you know, my boss gives me everything he doesn't want to do. He just dumps it on me, and it's usually in an email on Friday at 11.45 at night. I don't feel like my company values me. I feel like they ask me to do all the menial things that nobody else wants to do. Do you feel that way? Do you feel that maybe corporations value the workplace or the workforce in the same way? Maybe you're feeling a little underappreciated today and a little overworked. And I would say this, before you say, take this job and shove it, I ain't working here no more, okay? Before you let someone named Johnny Paycheck decide how you're going to, you know, order your vocation, let's hear a different story. Let's hear the, the creation story that's in our Bible. Because our God is calling us to a different story. It's a different story than the Babylonian gods. It's a different story than the God of the almighty dollar. It's a, it's a different story than the God of almighty prophet. See, our story says this, that God created us in his image. And by being created in the image of God, we have the capacity to reflect the love of God to the world. We have the capacity to reflect the compassion of God to the world. No other being in creation was endowed with these capacities to reflect God's own self to the world. And God took great delight in the humanity that he created. And he placed them, male and female, in the garden. And he said, enjoy this garden. Eat of its fruit. Steward its fruit. Work the soil and enjoy the garden and and manage it well. Because this garden, I value this garden, and this garden is good, it's very good. And man and woman in the garden, you're in charge of it because you're created in my image. And I'll come with you every day and we'll walk in this garden and we'll enjoy this garden together. You see, God didn't just assign humanity menial tasks that he just got tired of doing. God assigned humanity with the task of stewarding what was most precious to him. And he partnered with humanity and walked with humanity in this garden. And so, friends, as as we think about our, our identity as followers of Jesus, we are stewards of this creation, this world that we have. We are stewards of this creation. And that means we're co creators with God of the new creation that's coming. There's a new creation that's coming. God is at work doing something in the world. And he's inviting the world to be a part of it. And new creation is on its way. And the way you live your life and the way you spend your time is is your participation with God in new creation that's coming. 
And if you're going to spend 90,000 hours of your life in a workplace, what God is saying to you is, is be my agent of new creation in that place, somehow in that workplace. It may not be your favorite job. It may not be the job you love. It may not be your dream job. But God is saying, I am with you in that place. And I am co-creating with you in that place. And together in that place, we can bring about new creation. We can bring about the new creation that God has destined and planned for the world. You're a co-creator with God. And your life matters. And your work matters. And what I think God wants to do as we go to the city gates, yes, there's the potential for our workplace to shape us and to malform us. But when we're filled with the Holy Spirit and when we're surrendered to the Lordship of Christ, I believe it's possible for us to go to the city gates and we become the salt and the light that forms people and forms company cultures and forms the workplace in positive ways, ways that point to new creation that God is bringing about in Christ. And so, friends, you, you don't have the option here today to say, take this job and shove it. I mean, you may have a new opportunity at some point, and I hope you pray about that. But wherever you show up tomorrow, I want you to know that you are a co-creator with God. You are a co-creator with God and he is bringing about his new creation through you. And so this is how Proverbs 8 ends. Verse 35. For those who find me find life and receive favor from the Lord. But those who fail to find me harm themselves. All who hate me love death. This way of wisdom is a way of life. I pray that we find it. I pray that we find this way of wisdom. And I pray that we allow this life that, that we have found to be a blessing to others. Chad and Amy are going to come and they're going to lead us in a hymn. And it's called, Be Thou My Vision. And as they sing, I, I want you to just open your heart and your mind to the Holy Spirit today. Because here's the challenge after a message like this. The challenge is for you to discern. Okay, this is who God is calling me to be. This is the way of wisdom that I am called to live in. What does that look like in my workplace? What does it look like in my vocation? This place where I spend a third of my life. How do I get from what I know to be true and what I feel to be true and what God has confirmed to me as true, how do I get from that place to the decisions I make at work and the relationships that I, I steward there and I keep there? Lord, give me wisdom. Give me a vision for what that looks like so that my character, this, these, the, the sum total of the decisions that I make every day are brought into the alignment with the character of Christ. As Chad and Amy sing this, maybe you want to sing along with them. But right there in your seat, pray. And ask God to give you vision, to give you wisdom. And I know that he'll be faithful to reveal that to you.